This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Coming up in hour two, Chris Cuthbert from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. We will catch up on uh, the latest with the Maple Leafs and uh, the bad news of Jake Muzzin. Uh, we now know what the injury is, cervical spine injury. He will be reevaluated in February. February. Uh, also, TJ Brody um, on injured reserve oblique injury. Mac uh, Pontus Holmberg and Mac Hollowell called up from AHL Toronto. Uh, look forward to talking to Chris. Look forward to talking to Eric Engels in hour two as well. Uh, about the very exciting Montreal Canadiens. That is a fun young team to watch right now, who, by the way, very quietly, we were just talking about goaltenders a second ago with Elliot, getting excellent goaltending in Montreal. They are uh, someone else I'm very much looking forward to talking to. Well, welcome to the program. He is the president of hockey operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins, also on the Hall of Fame selection committee. It is a big night in the hall, but you already knew that. He is Brian Burke, and he joins me now. Berkey, how are you today? Good, Jeff. What's that background noise? Uh, what's the background noise? I don't hear anything in my end. Do you have a background noise? Yeah, uh, keep going. That's all right. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no problem. Pleasure is uh, is ours. How many times over the last I don't know four or five days have you said, you know, I drafted the Sedins, right? <laughs> well, everyone likes to bring it up. Um... It's become kind of uh, a fun thing to say around here. We're obviously very excited. Our whole family, uh, kids were all there when I did this deal, and it's, uh, we're all excited. And um, Vancouver Canucks are thrilled, obviously. So it's a, it's a big day. You have two guys. No one's ever gone in as twins. No one's ever gone in as brothers, I don't think, at the same time. Um, so it's, it's an exciting day for the Hall. It's an exciting day for the Canucks, and it's an exciting day for me. Uh, listen, and I'm sure you've wondered about this before too, because you know you've, you know, you and I have talked about this uh, this deal. You know, one of the biggest deals in the history of the NHL that now leads to two players going in to the Hockey Hall of Fame. You know, I'm sure that there was a point where you said this deal isn't going to happen, and Henrik and Daniel are going to end up on separate teams and not going to be able to pull the trigger on this one. Uh, this thing might be dead. Did you ever wonder what would have happened if that deal fell apart, Berkey? Like, I, I know it's the alternative history of, of, of hockey here, but, you know, so much of their success is we think of them almost like we think of one player. It's Henrik and Daniel, Henrik and Daniel, Henrik and Daniel. Um, you ever let your mind wander and you know, sort of wonder what would these guys have been like if they didn't play on the same team? Yeah, I have thought about that. I've thought about it a lot. It's, the fact is, it almost didn't happen. It, it almost this deal almost died in the womb. And we went to see the World mm-hmm. Juniors in Winnipeg, and the Twins finished, I think, third and fourth in scoring that year in the World Juniors. But they got all their points against, you know, Albania and Israel, and you know, not not against Canada and the U.S. They didn't do anything. And so I told our guys after the World Juniors, I said, I'm trading the pick. And that, that breaks your scout's heart. You know, you know you're going to have a high pick and just breaks their heart that, you know, you're not going to be able to use it. And I said, guys, I'm trading the pick. I hate, I hate this draft. I hated the first round. And if you look, it's the worst first round in the history of the league. So that enabled us to move, get some people to move people. And we paid a very stiff price. Bob Murray was the guy that started the whole thing with when we got number four. But we traded Brian McCabe in a first for that pick. Brian McCabe was a stud. I hated trading him. 
told him that last night. And yesterday afternoon, I saw him at the Legends game, and I said, Gamer, I hope you know how much I hated trading you. And um, so we paid a steep price, and uh, but it was worth it. And all the maneuvering that took place on, on the floor. Hey, people forget, Jeff. I know you know this. Yeah. This all happened on the floor. This all happened in the space oh, yeah. of about, I don't know, I had a, I had a, probably 12, 15 minutes. So Rick Dudley, we had proposed the deal. Rick Dudley walked over and said, okay, I'll do the deal. So Jay Feaster was the assistant GM, and Dave Norris was my assistant GM. They went down the hall corridor to go back in the back room to draft to do the deal because you have to do the paperwork. And that's when I walked over to Donnie Waddell and said, you know, I don't want to pick, I don't want to go up there twice. I'd like to take the twins together. Would you trade me number one? And no expansion team had ever picked number one before. And Ted Turner was there. He owned the thrashes at the time. So we did that deal. And Dave Nolis and Larry Simmons, the assistant GM for Atlanta, uh, they went, they ran down the back of the room to do that deal. So it all happened very quickly. Who was the uh, – like? I, I'm, I am curious, too – who was the most which one was the most difficult deal to pull off because that's a combination of a lot of uh, a lot of deals all culminating in these two players getting drafted uh, at the essentially at the same time which part of the deal was the hardest to make happen uh it was kind of a the middle one the one for Rick Dudley was probably the the hardest but I, I really believed that once we had two of the top four picks we had we had the twins. In fact, that was uh, we did this deal with Chicago on Father's Day, and on Father's Day, both my older daughters, Katie and Molly, have birthdays around the 17th and 19th of June, right around Father's Day. And so we always have a big brunch. So we had a big brunch for Father's Day and Katie's birthday, Molly's birthday, big boxes and packages everywhere. And I left my phone on, and I told uh, the kids I always thought I'd turn my phone off when I was doing business. And I had the kids. And I said, I got to leave my phone on, guys. And I came back from brunch and said, uh, I got the twins. And Patrick properly corrected me and said, you don't have the twins, Dad. You just have, now you just have one and three. I said, well, whoever has two of those four picks will have the twins. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and the hardest it, deal, it, it's an incredible The hard, hardest deal to do is, yep. yeah, sorry, Jeff, I didn't answer your question. The hardest deal, I overpaid badly to get the pick. You know, it turns out I didn't, but at the time I thought we paid a horrible price. Brian McCabe in the first. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that, that first was the fourth pick overall. So it wasn't like you were trading the 15th pick overall. Um, and then the hardest part was getting Rick Dudley to agree to do the other part of the deal. Cause he had already traded the pick when he made the deal to get four, he had already traded it. You know, you're, um, you know, when we look at your impact on hockey, Brian, um, a lot of people focus on, like, you've always gone after skill, but you've always really put a premium on toughness. And as I get older, um, I understand toughness a lot of different ways. And you probably got there a lot sooner than I did. Because I think the Sedins were really tough in their own way. Not exerting physically themselves on other people, but their ability to endure 
and thrive and survive uh, some particularly violent encounters in hockey games. Like these guys were essentially given every opportunity to quit. Cross checks, slashes, you know, hooks, punches, all of it. You know, I can remember, I can't remember who the general manager was who said, Sedin is not Swedish for uh, punch me in the face at a headlock or, or something like that. Oh, wait a minute, that was you, Brian. Um, I always found that in their own way, they had their own brand of toughness, and that was they weren't going to be intimidated. They were always going to come back, and you couldn't do anything physically to stop them putting their imprint on the game. Could you share a couple of thoughts on how, and maybe you don't, maybe you do, how you think the Sedins in their own way were tough hockey players? Well, they they were. They were incredibly tough. They were fearless. And it's an era where a lot of physical abuse that took place back then would not be allowed to take place now. So these guys, you can say that guys are fearless. They're going to skill players that weren't, you know, didn't have great foot speed. They're going to get hit anyhow. But back in the era, they got cross-checked, punched in the head. And so they were. They were fearless. And, and the player I've always used as an example is Greg Adams. So there were two Greg Adams, Greg C. and Greg D. Greg D. is the one that played in northern Arizona. Played for the Devils, played for the Canucks. He was a highly skilled guy. Never fought, never hit anyone, but he never cared how rough the game got. Didn't matter how rough the game got, Greg Adams played the same way and continued to score goals. That's the Twins. They didn't care. They ignored all the background noise. They ignored the hitting. And then Danny in particular. Henrik was the center. Henrik managed to avoid a lot of it. Danny got hit all the time. Mm hmm. You know, there's a uh, there's a couple of other names here as well um, that I want to go over with you. Um, uh, I can re- I just read over the weekend the um, the interview that Haley Salvian did, and it's like it's a, it's a remarkable piece uh, with Rika Salonen. And the the one thing that stood out to me from it is she said she was surprised at you know uh, at, at getting to the Hockey Hall of Fame because she was always of the belief that only women born in North America would ever make it to the Hall of Fame. You know, we talk so much about, you know, breaking down barriers and, you know, people um, getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame and you don't have to, you know, fit one stereotype of either being a Stanley Cup champion or having played in the NHL or played on the women's U.S. or Canadian team. I thought it was for the first, like for the first non-North American female hockey player, Rika Salonen, as everyone continues to tell me as well, was probably the easiest choice and the best choice for a non-North American-born player. Well, I agree. I think people have to keep in mind, part of the reason that there aren't, there weren't more, aren't more prominent women in international hockey is because of the one-sided nature of the tournament. You know, it's been Canada versus U.S. for 15 years. Canada versus U.S. Canada versus U.S. So you don't have, even really good players that put up good numbers, can't say I was a gold medalist, I was a silver medalist. It's Canada, U.S. So for Rika Salonen mm. to ever get a gold or silver medal would have been almost impossible for 15 years. And she took quite a bit of time off. She had to, she missed a bunch of hockey. Yeah. And then they're playing over three decades. So I think it's appropriate. Um, I am a huge fan of the women's game. People say that they are, but I have been for 20 years. Uh, I'm really excited that we're having our first international woman, our first overseas-born woman going to the hall, and I think that's just the start. There'll be more. 
Uh, there will, and I would imagine that Kim Martine eventually uh, will make it there. And you know Martine's story. I mean, we all know how you know uh, that squad. You know, upset the United States, um, and then unfortunately, you know, to the point about you know the 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 struggles with different hockey programs. Uh, Sweden cut the funding uh, for women's hockey almost like immediately uh, after that silver medal. Nonetheless, um, Daniel Alfredson. Um, this one is kind of a no-brainer for a lot of people. I'm curious about Brian Burke. The Anaheim Ducks general manager competing against the Ottawa Senators and Daniel Alfredson. What did you think of him then, and what do you think of him now? Well, Daniel Alfredson's a guy that was considered several times, obviously. He'd been passed over several times, and I think there was a, an awareness that this was a special player in terms of a guy that... Uh, and I think the Hall, and I'm on the selection committee, but we can't divulge what we talk about specifically and so on. But I think it is important to talk about what uh, what counts and how it matters, what matters when you induct someone into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So there's three basic areas, and I talked about this on, on radio, there's three basic areas that people at the selection committee considers. One is the overall career, two is hardware and, uh, and individual awards, and three is international. And then people say Daniel Alfredson did not have a lot of major rewards. We never won a Stanley Cup. And I'm like, well, there's 32 teams in the league. We're going to have more and more guys that are considered that don't, do not have a Stanley Cup. So I think yes. if you look at the body of evidence, I think his international was off the charts. His career was obviously a, a, a really impressive major, uh, a great career, good playoff score. And uh, the fact is, a lot of guys didn't win major awards when we had a star-studded group of players like Nick Lidstrom. Well, how many Norris trophies did he win? Who's going to win the Norris when he was still taking it at home every day? So I think there's a lot of, of mitigating factors. And I think it was time for Daniel Alfredson, and I think it's a, a great selection. I think he's wonderful. Um, let me ask you about uh, Roberto Luongo. Uh, really happy that he's going in. Uh, a lot of success. Again, here's someone that that never won the Stanley Cup. Like that. That is kind of as an aside here, Berkey, because because I'm with you. I don't think that uh, not having won a Stanley Cup should be any type of barrier to entry uh, for the Hockey Hall of Fame. And the Sedins got close but didn't win. Luongo got close but didn't win. Alfredson got close but didn't win. And they're all going in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Your thoughts as you know, part of someone on the Hall of Fame selection committee, your thoughts on Roberto Luongo going in? Well, I think statistically there wasn't a choice. I mean, I think there I think when your body of work puts you in the top three or four at your position, and I think we're I think we've got to look at the representation of goaltenders in general in the hall. I'm not sure that we've got a representative number in there in the most difficult position to play most important position to play. But certainly when a guy can dominate at that level and be in the top three or four in wins or whatever the criteria are, I see a, I think it's, you'd be hard-pressed to keep that player out, whether it's a man or woman or a goaltender or a defenseman. But certainly in the, in the position that's most important and most easily measured against others. You know, the wins, wins, you can say uh, how many wins you had as an Edmonton Oilers player, and you say, well, look at the team around them. But, you know, like, it's, it's pretty important to be able to stand up and say I was fourth in the league and wins or whatever. So, to me, it was a, a no-brainer for most people. 
Uh, speaking of gold, and great gurus, international, uh, too, by the way. Is... Great, great international oh, resume, speak... too, by the way. Sorry, Jeff. No, no, you're absolutely I'm glad you included that because it's absolutely true. Um, you know, Kevin Woodley from Ingold Magazine was on with me last week and, you know, making the case. I want to ask you about Herb Carnegie here in the builders category, but he was making the case uh, of how influential and how he completely changed the way the position is played, how influential someone like Francois Allaire is um, to the game and how he should be considered. And I wonder if somewhere down the road, and I know as a member of the selection committee, you probably can't talk about it, but um, as much as you can, before we get to Herb Carnegie, Francois Allaire Builders, will you hear that conversation, Berkey? I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly an esoteric part of the game. I, I believe in the, without divulging what I talk about or what other people think, I believe in the solar system theory, that the closer you are, you know, the, the players are in the first three rings, right? You're a builder, you're a, a player, or, a co- uh, you know, whatever. So you, you make it as a coach or whatever. I think the farther you get away from that, so can an assistant coach ever go in? I don't know. I have to, we have to think about it. Can a goalie coach ever go in? Mm-hmm. It just has such a specialized thing. I, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't thought about it. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure you've given plenty of thought to Herb Carnegie, as we all have. And I will always plug the book that I think every hockey fan should read, A Fly in a Pail of Milk, The Herb Carnegie Story. Uh, your thoughts on the late Mr. Carnegie going in? Well, I'm really proud of this one. This is, uh, I think it's, I think this, I don't think... People realize what a great hockey player Herb Carnegie was. I never saw Herb play. I I call him Mr. Carnegie, not Herb. I never saw Mr. Carnegie play. But based on contemporaries you talked to and said, you know, how good was he? They were like, this guy would have been a a first-line player in the National Hockey League for sure, except for the color barrier. So to me, I think he, he deserved merit and consideration as a player. But he's, he's going in as a builder. And the, what he did to build the game with his hockey schools and his education and, and just a classy guy, just an elegant human being. Um, and his, his, his briefs, his, his late uh, daughter is just a great chronicler of, of all this stuff. She's really keeping the, the memories and the dreams alive and making sure no one forgets Herb, Mr. Hardy. So, uh, I think it's well-deserved. As a player, I think he would have received some consideration, and but for. And then uh, I think as a builder, it's it's overdue, if anything. Yeah. You know, Red Story um, would often point out that as far as being a classy gentleman, uh, that one of the only people on par with Jean Beliveau was Herb Carnegie, which is certainly high praise anywhere. Um, Bricky, your Pittsburgh Penguins have a couple of, Hall of future Hall of Famers on it, uh, and we all know who those are. Um, listen, continued success with the Penguins. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. A day like this, I know, is a really busy one for you, uh, as involved as you are with the Hockey Hall of Fame. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Much appreciated, Bricky. Thanks, Jeff. There is Ryan Burke from the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, president of Hockey Operations, also part of the Hall of Fame Selection Committee. You know, the Allaire question is going to be an interesting one, and it's one that will probably continue to uh, to gather steam as well. Uh, if you missed Kevin Woodley on last week's show, Making the Case for Allaire and the Hall of Fame, you can go find the podcast. Really interesting. He's written about it as well. 
Uh, I don't think that that one's locked. I think that one's a free article. I believe. I believe. I believe. Um, so go check that one out. Really interesting case. Uh, coming up in hour two, Eric Engels from Sportsnet. We'll get uh, caught up on the Montreal Canadiens, the exciting Montreal Canadiens, and why Martin St. Louis may be the most chilled out coach in the game right now. But joining me next, Chris Cuthbert from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. The story in Toronto and the story in Vancouver. That's next with CeCe from Hockey Night and the NHL on Sportsnet. Back for hour two in a moment. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, a couple of injury updates to uh, to kick off Hour 2. We talked about Jake Muzzin uh, out indefinitely in Hour 1 with Elliot Friedman. Uh, cervical spine injury there will be reevaluated in February. We hope the best for A, the person, and B, the player in that order. TJ Brody um, on uh, injured reserve. Uh, oblique injury there, and that one really stings the Maple Leafs. Also, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets announcing earlier today there at, uh, that forward Patrick Line suffered a sprained ankle in Saturday's game against the Islanders, expected to miss three to four weeks. This on top of the Zach Wierenski situation, that on top of being in the basement in the Eastern Conference, and we're starting in Columbus to turn our eyes towards the Regina Pats, who are on an extended road trip right now, and Connor Bedard. Uh, let's get to our next guest. Uh, he is the play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. He is Chris Cuthbert, and he joins us now. Chris, how are you today? I'm good, Jeff. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be with you, sir, and uh, thanks for uh, for kicking off hour two here. Before we get in, I want to talk about you know the Maple Leafs and the Vancouver Canucks, uh, etc., the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, before we get into what we saw on the weekend um, in the, the Hall of Fame game Friday or Saturday's Vancouver Toronto affair, um, do you have a thought on the on the the Hall of Fame class going in this year? I mean, there's the the three Canucks, uh, there's a Finnish female, there's the great Herb Carnegie, and there's a uh, former Ottawa Senators captain. Well, it, it seemed, I mean, the overriding theme would be the uh, the Swedish delegation, and it, it tied so beautifully with uh, with Borea Salming on the weekend. And, you know, I, I was worried that uh, that some people might feel like Salming was getting attention from the Hall of Fame class, but uh, uh, but he's certainly so instrumental in, in those people going in that uh, uh, that I thought it, it, it dovetailed beautifully. Um, so uh, I, I think all are worthy. I think the Sedins are special, um, and, and um, they offer a different story than we probably ever had before. Um, Roberto's yeah. win total gets him in in one part, but for me, my memory will always be, and Ron Wilson uh, was able to uh, underscore this uh, when he told me that he thought they had the game-winning goal in in 2010, and yeah. Lavongo somehow shrugged a puck away that Joe Pavelski had labeled for the top corner, and uh, so that was icing on the cake for for Roberto and Daniel Alfredson's one of those guys, and I I 
I, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, uh, some guys are only good in their own markets. And I, I think there almost should be a special category for a few who were so important. Not only do they have Hall of Fame credentials anyway, but there, there's just that special added value of what they meant in their own market. And I, I always put Bernie Federko in this class when I hear people who are saying, was Bernie Federko a, a Hall of Famer? Bernie Federko is so special uh, to the St. Louis market, and, and I think Daniel's in that category too. So, uh, and, and then the, uh, the story of... Uh, of uh, Herb Carnegie and inclusion and and the inclusivity of, of finally getting a, a European woman in the in the Hall of Fame. So it's it, like every year it 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 has special qualities for sure. Uh, l- let me go back to that um, you know that uh, the, the talk about uh, USA and Canada because it's one of the most you know iconic calls uh, that we've ever heard. The Golden Goal. Um, would you would you have used the same phrasing if Pavelski would have scored that goal? Would it be Joe Pavelski and the golden goal? I I I, I might have. It it wouldn't have had the same shriek to it. That's for sure. Um, and I I, sh- I shouldn't admit that, but uh, but uh, but that probably would have been the case. Uh, remarkable with uh, Chris Cuthbert here. Um, let me let me just drill down a little bit on Borea Salming, uh, the player. Uh, well, first of all, actually, no, let's, let's back that up. What we saw on Friday, uh, the embrace with Daryl Sittler, the ovation, the outpouring of love and adoration uh, towards Borea Salming. Uh, he was one of my favorites. I was always, uh, like, I grew up watching uh, Maple Leaf games and Buffalo Sabres games. So as much as I love Gilbert Perrault, uh, I love Daryl Sittler as much as I love, you know, Don Edwards. I loved Mike Palmatier. Um, and but Borea Salming was special and, and mainly special to me because I never saw anyone skate like that. Now, albeit I'm a kid at this point, um, I never saw anyone skate like that. I not, never saw anyone wheel the puck out of their zone like that. Um, what are your memories of, of watching Borea Salming play, Susie? Well, I'm like you, I, I guess a few years older, but that was the sweet spot of my, uh, you know, my life as a fan. And the Holy Trinity for me was hockey. Holy Trinity was uh, was Salming, Sittler, and and McDonald. And uh, but there was something there was something differently special about Salming, who I think is the best Leaf since the, the Stanley Cup teams. And uh, I think it's an easy case to make when you when you lead the franchise in assists and do everything he did over his his period of time. Uh, with Toronto, only George Armstrong and Tim Horton have played more games for the Leafs, but uh, just special, courageous. Uh, I mean, that's what we all we all saw how from from the first time he played, how he was targeted. And uh, you know, I talked to Scotty Bowman the other day because I wanted to get his perspective on on Boria Salming and, and Salming's two runner-ups for the Norris came at the expense of Larry Robinson and, and, you know, Larry fully deserving, but also playing on arguably the greatest team ever at, at the time. But uh, uh, the one thing that Scotty, and I mentioned this on the broadcast, but kind of rushed through it, but Scotty made mention of how he had an innate talent for you, Salming, for keeping the puck in at the line. Always knew the right time to pinch. He said it was it was really difficult to get the puck past him and out of the uh, defensive zone. And and he did mention that only 
two players did they ever change the zone exits for the for the Montreal Canadiens, and that was uh, when they were playing Bobby Orr or Boreas Alming. So I, I, I just thought that was, uh, uh, you know, significant. And, and like you, I, I think we remember the 76 Canada Cup ovation. And, oh, and I, yeah. I wanted to bring it up because I've got a question to ask you. Uh, I noted, sure. and I knew Nick Lidstrom from that standing ovation became, Boreas became his childhood hero. And, and I had forgotten that in the Canada Cup, Boreas Alming wore number five. And um, so I connect the dots with Lidstrom wearing five. But I also wonder, and I, I, I tried to find out over the weekend and, and never got to the bottom of it, um, did Peter Forsberg wear 21 because of Boreas Alming? Uh, but in any event, that's how significant he is to Swedish hockey. And, and really, I, I, I think we're splitting hairs because he was that significant to Toronto Maple Leaf hockey too. You know, that that's interesting, and uh, this gives me something to do when the show goes off the air later this afternoon, because now I am curious whether that's why, um, why that's why Peter Forsberg wore number 21. Like, the, there, are, there are a few, you know, there are a, a few Swedes that I think about often, um, because, you know, right now, I mean, it's just been, you know, for the last however many decades, you know, an explosion of elite-level athletes coming in from Sweden uh, into the NHL, and I was glad that, you know, everybody reacquainted themselves with songs so everyone can tell the stories and just to reinforce how important he was um, you know I think about I think about Kent Nielsen uh, a lot one of the most like I, I, I consider Kent Nielsen to be one of the most highly skilled players the NHL has ever seen but that seems to me he tends to kind of be getting uh, lost to history I always want to keep that name uh, out there um, Hulk and Loop's a guy we always forget too the Lube as well. I think of uh, Schoberg as well. When we think mm-hmm. of you know, elite, I mean, there's a few from the WHA that we we think about uh, as well. But there were like and Olsson and I, Anders I Hedberg. I shouldn't interrupt, but uh, you know that was uh, that right. was such a significant part of hockey history too. Was those two with Bobby Hull. Yeah, and the, the the one thing that really distinguished Salming to me was. And right away, and some guys like, you know, Inga Hammerstrom always had a hard time with the physicality of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, Salming never did, and it wasn't just the muggings that he endured. It wasn't just the cross checks and the slashes and the punches and all that. But you know, this was an era where we'd see and there was there used to, be, folks. This may sound weird to you right now, but CC and I remember an era where guys would perform a move called the flamingo. When they would go out to the blue line to block a shot, and then they would raise a leg because they didn't want to get get hurt. I never saw Boreas Salming flamingo ever. Quite the opposite. I think we all remember Boreas Salming as great a skater as he was, as how physically strong he was. But he was someone who, and even you mentioned 76. That's one of the things that stood out about Salming, is how much he would get in front of pucks. And how much this guy would dive in front of shots. It was almost like you could be, you could throw a punch at him, you could throw a stick at him, and you could take a slap shot at him. Like, but we look at you no know, players that can endure and take punishment. Like, do we not put Borea Salming right up near the top, if not at the top of that list, CC? That absolutely. I, you know, I, I thought whoever did the video did a an amazing job on the weekend, and and it was such a great reminder for me of 
of the elegance that he played with. But but he also mentioned that you know he was a bit of a tough guy when when he came over from Sweden, and there was a whole different level of toughness. But you know at at, yeah. at the end of the day, it, it it wasn't measured for him in in dropping his gloves. It was just his his resilience. And you know I, I go back to my conversation with Scotty Bowman. I, I I think that was the first thing he mentioned how tough he was. And the other thing, they didn't, they didn't uh, keep times then. And for Scotty's money, that was a 30-minute-plus-a-night player, uh, for sure, for the Leafs back yeah. then. And you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I just wanted to mention this because uh, you and I can share all these memories because we watch. But I thought what was significant on the weekend was uh, the impression that video and, and everything we saw made on the next couple of generations who didn't get to see him. And it reminded me a little bit and, and, and work with me here on this. Cause it's a, it's, it's a, it is different, but I, I was a Muhammad Ali guy. And I remember watching the 96 Atlanta opening ceremonies with my kids who had obviously yeah. didn't know a whole lot at eight and 12 about Muhammad Ali's story, but they were completely riveted and taken with that moment and it's something about great heroes at their most vulnerable, and when the strength still stand, uh, sh- shines through, it's uh, it's something you never forget. And I, I think we had a piece of that on on uh, Friday and Saturday for sure. I agree, uh, Cece. I agree about a hundred percent on that. About a million percent on that. Absolutely. That that, and I can, I can st- still. We can all still see Ali standing there shaking. But you know, un- unbroken, you know, and 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 still uh, overcoming uh, in a lot of ways, and I think we saw that with Borea Salming. And if I can extend another Muhammad Ali metaphor, if it's not too strained, um, you know, we think about what Ali did against George Foreman and how he beat George Foreman. He didn't beat him by going punch for punch. He was just able to endure everything that Foreman threw at him. He took round after round after round after round of punishment from the scariest heavyweight boxer in the game at that point. I mean, we all saw what what Foreman did uh, before he before he met Ali in Zaire, and it was Ali just absorbing as much punishment as he could to tire out Foreman, and then he snapped into action. And it was just, it was a, it was a couple of punches real quick, and Foreman was down. Ali famously didn't hit him on the way down because the fall was looking so poetic that he wanted it to look that specific way. And if we can extend that metaphor to Salming, that was him. It was like I'm going to get hit over and over and over and over and over again, and you're never going to make me quit. That was yeah, the, uh, yeah. the story of Zaire with Foreman and Ali, and that's the story of Borea Salming in the NHL. You could not do anything to intimidate this guy. And and some athletes just were, to use Ali's term, prettier to watch. And and Borea was. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that was one of the things that I was reminded of in that video. I mean, his his skating style was just was poetry and and it it, it was beautiful and uh and it was a beautiful weekend and uh it, and i i, I also yeah. I, I know elliot referenced it a little bit uh, with the you know starting this the uh the six swedes but i i, I also want to mention sheldon keith talked a lot about legacy on the weekend and uh how important 
legacy is for a franchise, especially one like the Leafs, and what a legacy that Salming has left. And I do think that the players, the modern-day player, who probably didn't know a lot about Salming, I, I, I don't know how much Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner would have known about Boreas Salming, but I thought it was clear that they recognized something in in the legacy of of this great player and what it means to be a great player on a legendary team. And um, I even like the way Matthews, who's not always fully engaged in the, you know, the day-to-day questions that are thrown at him for in, in yeah. large part for good reason. I, I really thought he rose to the occasion when he, he wanted to talk about the moment and, and honoring Boreas Salming. And I, I think it did resonate big with the Leafs players and uh i i think that's important uh i agree and you know matthews recognized said you know this is something that that's not lost on us and i think that's a big statement uh from austin matthews in you know as elliot points out there's as we all know there's a lot of nhlers out there that have on their no trade lists every team in canada and, you know, Elliot brought up the good point on the podcast, which is, you know, this is what happens when you're, you don't even have to win the Stanley Cup, but if you play hard uh, for a team, Canadian fans know, and Canadian fans will remember you, and Canadian fans will always celebrate you. Are there going to be bad times? Absolutely. But the reward for playing like that, and again, this is without a Stanley Cup, but the yeah. reward of playing like that in a Canadian market is spectacular, and I, I think that Borea Salming is a great example of that. Um, I wanted to ask you about Saturday's game, and Saturday's game specifically from the uh, from the Vancouver side of things. Um, we all know the season that's uh, that Vancouver is going through right now. Um, we all believe that there is going to be something that happens with the Vancouver Canucks um, behind the bench at some point. Uh, I wonder... You know, if it weren't Hall of Fame weekend and three Vancouver Canucks weren't going into the Hockey Hall of Fame, would that have already happened? Uh, I don't think that anyone in the Vancouver organization wants to, to cloud anything um, when the Sedins and Luongo go in. Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow morning. Vancouver does play the Buffalo Sabres, uh, and we'll see. But from your observations up close watching the Vancouver Canucks, you know... It's it, 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 it gets tough to watch, and you can see the frustration and hear it in Bruce Boudreaux's voice as well. What was your takeaway after watching the Canucks Maple Leafs on Saturday? Well, I, I thought they played extremely hard. I thought you could tell that was an important game for both teams, and yet, for whatever reason, the, the Canucks go through that 10-15 minute span that has hit them in almost every game this year where, you know, stop playing, I guess, was the term Bruce used. But for whatever reason, um, yeah. you know, because I thought they, I thought there were moments in the game where they were great, and then there were ever, other moments where Spencer Martin was the best player on the ice and keeping them in it. Um, but but long term, I, I think you're right, and you might be on to something about, uh, you know, Hall of Fame weekend, uh, delaying things. I, I don't understand, um, you know, I, I, I know that Jim Rutherford's being honest and, and he has his own reasons, but, that it, you know, from my point of view in hockey, uh, you keep that internal and, and you're only harming the team 
in the short term by by airing dirty laundry um you know do they not want to pay three coaches in, in the same year i i i get that but i don't see the value in 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 publicly throwing bruce under the bus as well so you know this this was a road trip where he could have quieted the noise if they'd won three of five and they they win the first one and and now they're in danger of uh, going home with four losses in five and 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 it just you know it becomes a a more untenable situation so uh so it'll be interesting to see you know how long this goes on with uh, that dark cloud hanging over bruce you know, I, th- I think the one other person uh, that we're all wondering about is Bo Horvat um, with Vancouver, who just is turning in a spectacular season, 13 goals, only trailing uh, Connor McDavid in that category, always up around, what is this, he's like 55% uh, at the faceoff dot, you know, carries the C as well, um, you know, carries the burden of, you know, wondering what his next contract is going to be. Uh, he's a pending unrestricted free agent. Where is he going to be um, next season as well? Is you know are they going to move him at, uh, at at deadline if they can't come to any type of arrangement? And I don't think there's been much by way of negotiation, if at all, uh, going back to the to the late summer. You know he's you know wondering if he's going to be a, an Avalanche at trade deadline. Is he going to be a Boston Bruin? Is he who knows uh, at this point? But the the one thing that I find remarkable with Horvat is. As much as there are plenty of reasons to be distracted and be off of your game, through all of it, he's playing some of the best hockey we've ever seen him play. For and sure. He, he seems to be embracing really it, and other guys could get eaten up by yeah. the fact they're in their contract year. I, I'm, you know, it's from the outside, it's, it's been a little confusing that that never got done because for me, uh, you know, uh, on the priority list, it, it might have been uh, Horvat, Miller, Besser, not. Miller, Besser, and and now we'll get around to trying to nail down Horvat. But mm-hmm. it, it's going to be for whatever reason they made that decision. It's going to become more costly if if indeed they keep him. And uh, although as Jim Rutherford hinted, he keeps playing like that. The uh, the value of uh, of trading him increases. But uh, you'd think that'd be one of the guys that one of the centerpieces. If if you know, I've heard talk uh, from from. People in Vancouver that that nobody is is safe there, but you'd think that uh, that any build or rebuild uh, uh, of that franchise would involve Pedersen and Hughes and Demko and 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 I thought Horvat, but but maybe not. We shall see. Um, uh, we'll finish up with this question. Um, Toronto Maple Leafs and their net minding. There are some teams that need elite-level goaltending if they're going to have a chance, and there are some, and we may point to the Avalanche last season winning the Stanley Cup, who just don't need elite-level net mining and can still produce. Um, After seeing Shelgren, uh, whenever you have an American Hockey League goaltender in there, you say to yourself, we should probably bank on one, at least one, maybe two goals going in that probably shouldn't at the NHL level. Um, But in your estimation... Are the Maple Leafs a team that needs elite-level goaltending in order to succeed? Well, elite-level goaltending probably would have won them a series by now in the last uh, five, six years. Uh, but right now, I, I don't know if that's the main issue. Um, I, I don't mind Shalgren. I think everybody 
should have been delighted with Ilya Samsonov until he, you know, he got yeah. hurt. Unfortunately, it it doesn't sound like it's a serious injury. I mean, the Matt Murray question's obviously uh, completely unanswered, and and maybe we'll start learning a little bit more about what he can bring to the table in the next week or two. But um, um, I haven't been really, you know, disappointed in any way with with what Shalgren's been able to do coming up here in, in a pretty tough circumstance to keep them, uh, to keep them at least on course. And, uh, and I thought he was probably at his best on Saturday night against Vancouver. Uh, yeah, he really was exceptional. Uh, on that, we're going to let you go. Uh, Chris, thanks as always for stopping by. Listen, you shared a lot on a lot of different topics, whether it's Hall of Fame, Salming, the Maple Leafs, the Vancouver Canucks. Thanks for, for spending some time with me this afternoon. Much appreciated. Great being with you as always, Jeff. Thanks. There he is, Chris Cuthbert, play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada, the NHL on Sportsnet as well, as we'll uh, bring in our producer, Matt Marchese, here for, for just a couple of thoughts. I, I am always curious um, as to how people remember certain hockey players, even if they you know only caught the tail end of a career or maybe didn't even watch them at all. Um, Maddie, when you saw... Borea Salming this weekend. I know we're spending a lot of time talking on Borea, but it's so you know emotionally impactful. Um, what went through your mind when you saw either Salming with you know Sittler embracing on the ice, uh, the opening faceoff and the embrace with William Nylander, uh, the ovations, like all of it, all, all, everything around Borea Salming this weekend, Maddie? Well. It, you know, my dad used to, my dad watched Boris Salming a lot, so he's of a, a vintage, and he's he's um, yep. a bit older than you are, and and he remembers a lot of Boris Salming. He used to tell me all the time about how tough Boris Salming was and how great of a player he was, and I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, I, I'm sure he was great, Dad. You're not Leaf biased at all, but then you hear the stories about him, and you hear, you know, the the story about fighting Dave Schultz, and you talk, and and you hear the stories about what he had to endure as a Swedish player coming over to play in the NHL and watching that video on Saturday night, and I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. That puts so many things into perspective for me, just about what Borea Salming meant to the organization. Jeff, I, I never watched Borea Salming play. As you know, I, I've seen, you know, the highlights and I've heard the stories but watching that yep. video and watching him with, you know, the, the emotion from former teammates, like I started to tear up and I was watching the game at my in-laws place and nobody had a dry eye. It was just, it meant so much. And and even, you know, um, my mother-in-law who watched a little bit of hockey when she was younger and, and, you know, grew up with hockey because her son and her husband, whatever. But even she was talking about like, Borea Salming and all the things that she remembered about him. So he had an impact everywhere. And and just what he meant to the organization, just it speaks volumes that they 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 did uh, they didn't really do a full tribute to him on Friday, but to honor him on both nights and to see the ovation and what it meant to everybody, I thought that was very well done by the organization. So kudos to them. Yeah, that was uh, that really was excellent. Now uh, tonight will be a special night for the Vancouver Canucks specifically, a special night for all uh, the inductees. But I want to drill down on the uh, on the three going into the hall, uh, the Sedins and Roberto Luongo. And you may not have seen uh, Borea Salming, Maddie, but you saw all these three. 
any moments or anything stand out from their careers for you that you'd like to remark on or anything you want to pull out like a, a moment a game an incident anything that's uh when i say their names you go oh yeah i have this story well the the daniel i always as a leaf fan growing up i always hated daniel alfredson so i never really had an appreciation for him until his career kind of wrapped up and i went well he was really good um <laughs> the 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 fake throwing the stick into the stands is one of my favorite daniel awesome. alfredson stories because we we so you good. and i so good you and i talk on this show so much about having villains and having heels in the game and there was no bigger heel in Toronto than Daniel Alfredson when those teams played each other in the playoffs. And Daniel Alfredson was never shy away from a mic. When the times were bad, Daniel Alfredson was in front of a mic and and he always showed yeah. up. Things were not always great in Ottawa, but when they were, he was front and center along with Danny Heatley and, and Jason Spezza and Wade Redden and Chris Phillips. I mean, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty good team that never won. And then, you know, for Roberto Luongo, he was just one of the great characters of the game as well off the ice don't forget what he did on the ice but you know for a guy to come out when he's when he thought he might be traded and say well you know my contract sucks or the things that he would say on twitter um which was the never verified account of roberto luongo alleged alleged yeah exactly alleged (laughs) so so he was just he was not only one of the greatest goaltenders of his generation he was also one of the yeah. best characters off the ice as well. And and the Sedins, I mean, Jeff, it, the fact that I, I love how you asked the question to Brian about what their career would have been if they didn't play together. I'm so glad that that didn't happen because when you watch them and the magic that they created on the ice, like they talk about uh, twins, you know, having ESP basically and knowing where they are at all times. And I truly believe that watching Daniel and Henrik on the ice, because there's some plays that they mm-hmm. make and you look and go, how did he know he was there? It's like, Oh, right. They're twins. That's exactly how he knew he was there. Just passing it to areas, right. Where, you know, the other one is going to be, um, I mean, they were brilliant. They were, they were such sub- sublime hockey players who just thought the game at a completely, like a completely different level. And I've, I made this point, I think here and, and probably on the podcast as well, they were nowhere close to being the fastest skaters in the NHL. Nope. Uh, they did not have the hardest shots, <laughs> not by a stretch of the imagination. They were just smarter than everybody. They just, they just thought the game at a, com- and I always love players like that, that can, you know, completely think their way into being elite. I mean, sure. There's a basic hockey skill that they, that they have and the ability to, to, you know, to, uh, to find each other is, is certainly one as well, but they just thought the game better and they thought the game differently um, than anybody else. And, you know, Alex Burroughs was their, their best winger. Um, and that was such a fun line to watch and, and completely worked. Although, you know, it was really good watching them with Samuelson as well. What's the old, what was the old saying? Cycle, cycle, look for Michael. Cycle, cycle, look for Michael. Like that. <laughs> they gave us great memories. Um, and uh, again, like in a north-south game, they went east-west in the offensive zone. Uh, now everybody does it, right? Make your Royal Road passes. Make your slot line passes. Everybody does it. Sedins were doing this on the regular from the moment they came over to Vancouver, like from the get-go. I think a lot of people looked at them and said, what's this? And then the brilliance of them only appeared. And, you know, they did have the benefit 
of not having to, you know, step into first line territory when they first came over. But as the years went on, I think people finally started to understand what they had and how genius these two guys were. Uh, we will take a break. We'll uh, come back and talk about the Montreal Canadiens, who, uh, if you haven't watched them lately, if you've just written off the Montreal Canadiens and said, ah, it's a rebuilding team, I'll check them out again in a couple of seasons. Yeah, you're missing some really good hockey. This is a young team. We know that. This is a well-coached team. We know that. And this is, dare I say, this is a really fun team to watch. If you haven't already, spend some time with the Habs. You will not be disappointed. San Luis has these guys playing at a clip and they're having fun and they're young and they got skill and Caulfield's going to continue to score a bajillion goals and Suzuki is, uh, you know, going to turn into one of the best two-way players in the NHL and Caden Gooley keeps getting better and better and better and better and they're getting high in net mining as well. And wasn't that one of the concerns with Montreal this year, no carry price. Uh-oh, it's going to be ugly in the crease. Spoiler, it hasn't been. Eric Engels from Sportsnet comments on the Montreal Canadiens in a couple of moments. Merrick show continues across the Sportsnet radio network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. We're back in a moment. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Just on the break, reading... um a piece in the Players' Tribune written by Eric Carlson of the San Jose Sharks about his former teammate, Daniel Alfredson. I remember his face when he got the call. All business, then a big smile. A big Alfie smile. Uh, I linked it on Twitter. Uh, have a look at this piece. It's really cool. Um, Eric Carlson uh, talking about his former teammate um, and best friend going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. That is very cool. And we'll watch for that later on this evening. Meanwhile, the Montreal Canadiens get going again tomorrow. They'll face off against the red-hot New Jersey Devils. I don't think they're phased at all. Their coach isn't, and the kids are too busy having fun to be worried about things like pressure uh, right now. And they are flat out one of the most fun teams to watch in the entire NHL. They are the Montreal Canadiens, and uh, who knows that better than our man Eric Engels from Sportsnet. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Who would have thunk it, Jeff? They're fun, man. Like, I love it. I love watching Habs games. And I, I'll be honest with you. I thought, oh, man, the, some of these games are going to be clunkers. This is going to be a tough watch. This is going to be, you know, ugly on the eyes. There's going to be a lot of channel flipping. Every time Habs are on, you just end up parking more and more time, whether it's um, whether it's Suzuki, whether it's Caulfield, whether it's Kirby Doc. I haven't mentioned him yet today, whether it's uh, Arbor Jackeye for the hardcores whether it's uh, Caden Gooley to say nothing of the goaltending they're getting. I don't know. Like, I'll, I'll open up the field. Like, what's most impressive about either these players that I've named or maybe I'm missing something? Like, what's most impressive to you? Oh, man. I mean, I'll, I'll give you macro and micro. On the macro scale, it's kind of the vibe around this team that even through training camp, as they had eight preseason games and didn't win a single one of them, 
you know, the vibe was yeah. upbeat and, and you had a sense that, you know, they might be in the fun zone at some point this season and to start off the way they did with a win against Toronto, um, you know, that was galvanizing a little bit. It was unexpected. And, and <laughs> from there, it's an 8-6-1 yeah. record total uh, on the micro scale. Seeing Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki, and Kirby Dock and what they're doing as a line right now is pretty impressive. It's one of the best lines in the NHL. And I think, you know, people are looking at Suzuki's 27% shooting percentage or whatever it is and say, okay, a regression is coming, and naturally it would. Um, but, man, yeah. you know, like his shot selection is so good, and he's just such a smart player. And I, I don't think the points are going to drop. I think he's just going to start shooting more. So it's just one of those situations mm-hmm. where – I thought that Caulfield and Suzuki would be appointment television, appointment viewing at the Bell Center throughout the season, and that would kind of be the saving grace uh, and the kids being able to play and make mistakes and live with them and all that stuff. But the vibe around this team right now is so good uh, that the fun zone has been extended. Yeah, you know, and the, the the one player that I wonder about too, because you know, I, I listen. We all know there were you know there were injury issues, and so you know that can that can false start a player. But I was beginning to wonder towards the end of his time with the Chicago Blackhawks, what Kirby Doc was going to become. He's a former third overall draft pick, a surprise for some. That's going back to the Vancouver draft. Um, you know, uh, after Jack Hughes and Capocacco, it's Kirby Doc. And I think a lot of us, I know I was, even though he's really young, starting to wonder, okay, here, um, what's going to happen to this kid? Uh, Have the injuries already derailed what once looked like a promising career? What's been the magic here? Like, what's the the Marty St. Louis, you know, secret sauce? What's making this one work? Uh, Well, great question. Um, Well, Putting him with Caulfield and Suzuki was a good move, especially recognizing that Doc was playing pretty good hockey aside from, you know, that one big hiccup in his game up the middle, which is winning faceoffs, which a lot of young players struggle with. But, you know, he's a perfect example of sure. why you don't give up on a 21-year-old player. Um, it's it's a little premature to do that. Even if a, you draft a kid third overall and by 21, he's not fulfilling the promise you expect of him. Um, you know, opportunity was a thing in Chicago. Injuries were a thing in Chicago. But Kirby Doc himself had, you know, maybe it took this trade for him to, to really reflect on his own things and what he was controlling himself or, or not controlling to be in a place where he wasn't producing to the level that he should have. And, you know, he's almost reached his point total over 70 games last year uh, in 15 games here in Montreal. And I, I think just Martin St. Louis recognizing that even when he had three points in eight games playing with kind of revolving doors on, on his wing, <clears throat> he was playing good hockey. He was driving play. And to put him with Suzuki and Caulfield and show him the belief that he can complete that duo, use his poise and his speed and his strong stick uh, to create offense, um, has, has brought him to another level confidence-wise and also production-wise. But, you know, like I wrote about on Saturday, Jeff, it was one thing to see him set up the game winner for Mike Hoffman at three on three. Another thing for him to set up, uh, you know, game tying goal on a power play late in the game. Yeah. The two plays that he made on the goals that he didn't get any credit for, you know, Caulfield's goal, uh, which makes it three three in the game against Pittsburgh, where he gets dumped by Marcus Pedersen in the corner, hit hard against the wall, gets up, dusts himself off, beats Pedersen to the net, creates the screen for Caulfield to shoot 
through. Like this is the evolution of a player understanding. He's got to take care of the team, take care of the little details, and the production will come from that. And and with his body and his skill set, if he's doing those things, mm-hmm. he's going to continue to produce. Uh, speaking of producing, Cole Caulfield is a point of game. Kirby Doc is almost there as well. Uh, I don't know at what point we start to talk about what Cole Caulfield's next, con- next contract is going to look like, Eric. Uh, but if he keeps up this pace, it's going to be a, a hefty one. Has there been any conversation, any noise, any volume around that issue? You know, he's a, albeit restricted, um, free agent coming up at the end of the season. My information's a bit dated, Jeff, but last I checked in, there wasn't even a phone call between both sides here, and I think it has to do with waiting to see where things evolve, because despite Gary Bettman's optimism on where the cap is going, I think, you know, speaking to some different sources around the league, um, they don't seem to believe, and I'm talking about some different GMs around the league and a couple of agents, um, I'm hearing different things. Some of the agents are hopeful, and, and they really believe that, oh, okay, you know, the yeah. cap is going to jump up by $4 million, and it's going to be over 90 in a year from now. And then I speak to a couple of GMs who are saying, I think that was, you know, a little premature and that the Canadian dollar and with the recession mm-hmm. could could come down and there's $250 million to make up here and, and Canada is a big part of it and they're reluctant. Um, and, and it just, this waiting game kind of makes sense on both sides of it. Um, if I'm Cole, I'm not rushing here. I, I'm looking at what Jason Robertson did. Uh, in Dallas and saying to myself, I could secure a pretty high number for a three or four year term. Uh, and then, you know, a year away from unrestricted free agency, break the bank, you know, Austin Matthews, I think kind of had the original idea there. Um, I don't, I, I could totally see that extending to a guy like Caulfield and Robertson kind of set the bar in terms of his production jumping from 17 goals to 41. And if you look at Cole's trajectory, it's pretty similar. Um, you know, so on your on his end, you know, of course, he'd like to be a Montreal Canadian for eight years, and he'd like to sign long term and, and have that type of security. Um, but I don't think he's going to sell himself short to do it. And if you're Ken Hughes, you're saying to yourself, if we can lock him in for eight years right now at a number that's lower than Suzuki's, um, great. And I, I just I don't understand. Like, uh, I don't understand how Cole would look at that and say, okay, that makes sense for me right now. So it, it's. It's going to be really interesting to watch from here to whenever that deal inevitably gets done because it, there's one thing that's certain here is that Cole Caulfield wants to be playing with Nick Suzuki for as long as possible, uh, and he wants to be a Montreal Canadian, yeah. and the Canadians would like for him to be a Canadian for as long as possible. But the salary cap dynamics and the uncertainty there and where it all goes is, is the big question, and that's mm-hmm. why I think it's been kind of quiet on that front for now. Uh, a, he is a number one defenseman as a 20-year-old. He's Caden Gooley. He plays just over, well, just under 21 minutes a night. When you look at all the impressive performances from young players on this team so far, where do you put the Caden Gooley phenomenon, and do you make it number one? It's it's If it's not number one, it's right up there. I mean, look, uh, I... I think he is a great example of what happens when you give a player just that extra year of development when you're on, when he's right on the cusp of playing. Like he came to training camp last year, yeah. Jeff. He looked physically ready to play, and it's no coincidence that he took the confidence he built at training camp. Um, and and he's so mature, man. Like I, I was talking to him at this year's mm-hmm. training camp, and you know, last year 
he looked physically ready. He said, yeah, but I don't know if I was mentally ready. And I think it was really good for me to get into all those situations. Like, do you ever hear a 19, 20-year-old kid say it was good for him <laughs> to go back to junior? Um, and it was. Yeah. You know, he got to be the captain of Team Canada in a short-lived experience because of the pandemic, cutting that tournament yeah. short. Um, goes to the Memorial Cup, the WHL playoffs, uh, plays huge minutes, works on his offensive game, which would have been the biggest limitation to him proving that he could inevitably evolve into a top-pairing defense bank. Because beforehand, I think we would have said, this is going to be a really good number three, number four type defenseman, but really solid, and he's probably going to be that from the day he starts in the NHL. And I, I think we're looking at a top-pairing defenseman uh, and to see it 15 games into his career at 20 years old, shut down Sidney Crosby twice uh, when he's on the ice for virtually all of his even strength ice time, all his five on five ice time, limit him to zero shots on net. I'm sure Crosby's going to get him eventually. And especially with us in Montreal making any noise about this whatsoever. But the fact that that's becoming like something normal for Caden Gooley, you're, you're right. This might be the biggest subject, most interesting and impressive thing happening in Montreal, where there's a lot of interesting, impressive things happening with this team. I, I really do think it's number one. Like I love how I mentioned, like you know, uh, Kirby Doc has turned himself to a point of game player. Nick Suzuki's on a different level right now. Uh, I want to get to the goaltending in a second here, but to me, the big story is like you have a twenty-year-old number one defenseman on the Montreal Canadiens, and it's not as if you know they're they're just you know force feeding him protein shakes and pumping him up and sending him <laughs> out there. He's like legit num- num- number one defenseman on you know the what? Montreal two... Canadiens. Let me ask you about. Before you do, Jeff, there's two contributing factors that have to be mentioned here. One is David Savard and his professionalism and and having a guy be able to mentor Gooley and play with him on a nightly basis is a huge help. And he's the second leading guy in block shots. And we all know what that says about the Canadians and how many shots are being directed at the Canadians when they're on the ice. But what an example this guy is, is proving to be for Gooley, and that helps a lot. The other is that this coaching staff enables their young players to make mistakes and jump back on the ice and the confidence remains intact as a result and and nobody's getting picked apart in the video room they're being taught and it's it's really impressive and it's a big contributing factor in Cooley and the other young kids success you know which is why i think that you know marty st louis is one of the most progressive coaches it might be the most chill coach right now like it never feels like he's out of control he's always calm and cool and chill whether it's during a game or you know i was watching that interview with elliot on saturday on hockey night in canada i'm like does anything phase like I, we all know like what marty san louis has gone through in his entire career and the hurdles he's jumped over to get there and that does harden you and changes your personality um and you know you face that adversity you're a different person coming out of the other end um, but I don't know that, you know, I don't know if there's a, there's a coach in the NHL right now. I mean, Cooper's kind of there too. Um, but is as maybe chill is the right word as Marty St. Louis right now. Is that what you've seen? Yeah. He's like the Aristotle of hockey also like his philosophies <laughs> on the game and the way he thinks, and I, I would have chosen Socrates, but you know, you go with the disciple, like he, he, he was a student of the game first and now he is the teacher and it's just so fascinating watching him run his uh, I gotta tell you Jeff like I have watched practice in the NHL for 15 years nobody runs them like Martin St. Louis did because he hated his practices as a player he felt they were 
simulating nothing resembling game situations. It was all about crisp passing and rush play and nothing that enables you to really work on what a game situation is actually like. And now everything he does is geared towards game simulation. And I got to tell you, like I watched the players and yeah, they're in a three game winning streak right now. So it's easier to notice, but they are having so much fun at practice to the point where practice practice is being extended by half an hour because after practice, they're not just standing around shooting around. They're doing individual work with the different coaches that they brought in development and the whole atmosphere of the Canadians and the vibe that is around them and the way they play the game freely from Doc to Gooey to Jack Guy to whoever you want to pick, Martin St. Louis' fingerprints are all over it. And I remember interviewing Jeff Gordon last year and saying, you know, like, why this guy? And he just said, I just think he's special. I've been exposed to him as a player in New York, and he's just a special guy. He must have said special six times. And there are so many examples <laughs> as we've gotten to know Martin St. Louis. I sat down with him at the beginning of the year. Like, I know this guy hates losing. He hates losing more than he loves winning. And there was going to be points. I mean, he lost eight preseason games in a row. And every time he comes out for a press conference because of the situation the Canadians are in, selling uh, what they yeah. would refer to as a build versus a rebuild, you know, there's there's not that much pressure. And he can treat it as, oh, this is the process. But, man, like, this guy... His philosophy is just so fascinating, and it permeates throughout the entire organization. And, and I think that's maybe the biggest accelerant we're going to see in this build that the Canadians have. And it's why they're a bit ahead of schedule already and producing good results. The process is very healthy. And I think a lot of people look at him skeptically and say, okay, when the pressure does come, will he be able to do this? And I would say to those people, Given my exposure to this guy, I would not bet a cent yeah, against him. Like not one. Yeah. And 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 track record as well. We're uh, we're up against it. Uh, Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing uh, your expertise on the Habs. Tomorrow's game is going to be a big one. I mean, Habs are hot. Devils are hot. This one uh, is going to be a really good game. Very much looking forward to it. Thanks as always for stopping by, pal. Me too. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Uh, so a couple of things here as we wrap up. Um, Want to congratulate everybody going into the Hockey Hall of Fame tonight. Some very special players, some very special people as well. Uh, congratulations to Daniel Alfredson. And once again, I'll encourage you to read uh, the piece that uh, Eric Carlson wrote about Daniel Alfredson on the, uh, on the Players' Tribune. Uh, congratulations to him. Congratulations to uh, Daniel and Henrik Sedin. Uh, who made us see the game their way and saw opportunity. Um, speaking of opportunity, Rika Salonen has now had the opportunity to say she's the first non-North American-born female player to go into the, uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame. Very deserving, one of the most recognized and decorated players on the, on the women's side. Roberta Luongo, great goaltender. And then if the Hall of Fame had a Twitter wing... He would be in it as well. And the great Herb Carnegie, uh, who should have probably been in as a player years and years ago, a player in the NHL, I mean, uh, great seeing Carnegie take his rightful place at Young and Front Street in downtown Toronto. Enjoy it tonight. We're back tomorrow.